Hello and welcome to the Canon Rins Podcast, Volume 5, Issue 241, on the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series. You can play along with Canon Rins Volume 5. Coming up, we have Alien Isolation, Broken Sword, Shadow of the Templars, The Legend of Zelda, Twilight Princess, Amnesia, The Dark Descent, one of these uh, kind of darkness-themed games coming up in the Halloween season, and Fallout New Vegas. You can head to kinderments.com for the full schedule, the blog, and links to our merchandise stall, Facebook, Google+, and YouTube. And uh, we've got some fun stuff on our YouTube, including at least a couple of videos that are uh, exploring some of the locations within the Tony Hawk series. And so those play in nicely. Those should be released by the time that this episode goes live. But we have uh, at least one or two that are looking at the various ways that San Francisco has been depicted in the series. And it's uh, some of its skateboarding history in real life. As well as uh, a video looking at some of the, not lost levels, but levels that are in less popular iterations of the games. Um, you'll, you'll understand if you, if you go and watch it. So hunt those down on our YouTube. Um, otherwise, you can tune in every Wednesday to Sound of Play. That is our video game music podcast. And uh, please do subscribe, rate, and review both of our podcasts on iTunes. And uh, we would be very appreciative of that. If you would like to contribute financially to the show, we have a Patreon. Nothing is locked behind any sort of paywall. It's all just kind of a virtual donations box, but it does help very much. Anyways, joining me today, I am Ryan Heyman, is Carl Moon. Hey, guys. And Dan Clark. Hey, it's great to be back with you again. All right, so we've got a lot to talk about today. This is a, an extensive history. We're going to be mainly focusing on Tony Hawk's Pro Skaters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, although doubtless we'll get into talking a little bit about the underground games at least. Those aren't necessarily within the scope of the show, but it's going to be kind of hard to avoid talking about the rest of this series. So just to give a quick little rundown of the series and some of the history of Neversoft Studios, uh, Neversoft had been developing a game called Big Guns. It was a third-person shooter for the PlayStation 1, but it was facing some uh, major problems at that point in development. Simultaneously, Activision was trying to find developers for the project that Bruce Willis was signed on to called Apocalypse. And since the Big Guns engine suited Apocalypse so well, Neversoft was given the responsibility of developing the PlayStation third-person shooter. And they later used this engine to create Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and they actually used Bruce Willis's character model skateboarding around some of Apocalypse's game levels to demo what they wanted to do with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. The original Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, uh, also called Tony Hawk's Skateboarding in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and parts of Europe, debuted on the PlayStation in September of 99 and came to the N64 in February of 2000, the Game Boy Color in March of 2000. It's a completely separate uh, version of the game. The Dreamcast in June 2000, and it was a part of, uh, well, all of the levels within the first Tony Hawk games were a part of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2X that was released on the Xbox in uh, November of 2001. We should also add, <laughs> not that it will probably serve that important a talking point, but it was released on the N-Gage in uh, October of 2003, if anyone remembers that uh, month in history. It was uh, developed by Neversoft, still a relative unknown at the time. Previously, they had ported MDK to the PlayStation, and they were concurrently developing Spider-Man. I think that even came before... The movies, um, oh, it probably came out around the same time. Yeah, but, it was just uh, before the first, about a year before, I think. Okay. 
yeah, I, I remember playing a lot of that demo. <laughs> Anyways, I liked that one when I was younger. That was uh, released in 2000. Um, and then the budget for the first Tony Hawk game was around $150,000. That's astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> for it's a seminal the series ended up becoming. This was published by Activision and designed by Aaron Camerata and Chris Rausch. It has a game rankings average score of around 92 to 94%, depending on the version that you're looking at. And VG Charts puts the estimated sales at around 3.42 million in North America, 1.38 million in Europe, and a total of 5.02 million worldwide for the PlayStation version, as well as 2.1 million worldwide for the N64 version, and 1.33 million on the Game Boy Color. Uh, no numbers on the Dreamcaster Engage versions. The original idea was to create a downhill racing game, and uh, some of the early designed levels, such as Downhill and the Mall, reflect this as they're kind of straight lines that you would race through through these these long courses. And they found during testing that players spent more time just kind of rushing to the bottom and then doing tricks before crossing the finish line and just kind of playing around with the flatland areas than actually racing. And so they changed the game's core focus to reflect a more kind of open and uh, trick-based game. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 followed this soon after, being released a year later, uh, September of 2000, on the PlayStation in North America and Europe and March 2001 in Japan. It had various versions as well coming out within the next uh, year or so, um, scattered across uh, various dates on the PC, Game Boy Color, Dreamcast, Mac, Game Boy Advance, N64, Xbox, and iOS. iOS coming quite a bit afterwards, actually. This was uh, developed by Neversoft once again, and Game Rankings puts this at about 95% on the PlayStation and Dreamcast, around 83 to 87% on the Xbox, PC, and N64, and around 71% on Game Boy Color, 90% on Game Boy Advance. So quite a larger spread than we had been seeing before. VG Charts estimates this at around 7.25 million total sold. And we should also mention uh, there is a distinct difference between Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2X, the version for the Xbox, which came out about a, uh, just over a year after the original release on the PlayStation. And uh, I have actually gone back to playing this one over the past week or two. I bought a disc version of this pretty cheap to just uh, pop this in, play it around a little bit, and it holds up surprisingly well. It's a very faithful recreation of the first two games on a slightly smoother engine. It, it looks really nice. It plays really nicely. It, it's pretty much everything you'd hope for. It's the full Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 experience, and it comes contained also with all the levels from Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1. So it's really a wonderful package for anyone wanting to go back, as well as uh, five original levels. And you can play Spider-Man, so, you know, that's a big plus. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 came out uh, around October to November of 2001 on the PlayStation, PlayStation 2, and Game Boy Color. GameCube as well, Game Boy Advance, Xbox, and PC, N64, and Mac. And it's at this point that uh, around the console generation break that the versions that were released on the GameCube, PS2, and Xbox looked pretty remarkably different than those that were released on the PlayStation and N64. Uh, a lot of the courses were built with the more powerful hardware in mind, and so they were able to be bigger and uh, more expansive, more detailed and intricate than anything you'd see on the previous generation hardware. 
And so when they uh, when they ported these games to the previous consoles, they had to do quite a bit of scaling back of these levels, and sometimes they are completely unrecognizable, almost the original level. So it's uh, yeah, almost like a entirely different game. Um, both this and Pro Skater 4 had very similar treatment there. The updated version of the game for the next generation consoles moved away from the Big Guns engine and um, ported it to the Renderware engine, which is developed by Criterion, also used for Bully, Burnout Paradise, Crackdown, Grand Theft Auto 3, and San Andreas, Killer 7, Shadow the Hedgehog, Persona 3 and 4, and Suikoden 3. So that's uh, quite a spread there. And Game Rankings gives Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 around a 90 to a 93%, depending on the uh, next-gen, or I guess next-gen of the time, version that you'd be looking at. Uh, 88% on the Game Boy Advance, 81% on the PlayStation, and 62% on the Game Boy Color. Let's see, according to Metacritic, it is tied with GTA 3 at 97% for the highest rated PlayStation 2 games of all time. And VG Charts puts this at around 8.05 million total sold. This was the first game on the PlayStation 2 to support online play as well. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 followed that soon afterwards on the uh, PlayStation 2, PlayStation, GameCube, Game Boy Advance, Xbox, PC, Mac, and the Tapwave Zodiac. And I don't know what that is, but uh, apparently they released Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 for it. Sorry, was not able to dig up more information about that piece of hardware. Uh, Game Rankings put this at around 83 to 92.5%, and it sold around 5.75 million total. And then the, uh, the series started branching off into the uh, Underground, Underground 2 and Remix, American Wasteland, American Skateland, and Project 8, Downhill Jam, Proving Grounds, before there was a little bit of a hiatus. The series started to kind of decline in popularity at, uh, at that point, probably peaking with Underground or Pro Skater 4, but it still did release yearly iterations for a while after it uh, started waning in popularity. It made a return of sorts in 2008 with a Tony Hawk Motion, uh, followed by the very controversial Tony Hawk Ride and Tony Hawk Shred, created by Robomoto, uh, which were bundled in with a skateboard-looking peripheral, which um, I had a friend who owned one of these, and uh, it, it didn't work very well at all. And um, yeah, those, uh, those games are kind of exceptionally unpopular. And then Shred Session in 2014, but the proper kind of rebirth of the series, not that it ever kind of uh, ascended to its previous heights, but the one that kind of uh, indicated that it was somewhat getting back on track was the release of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater HD um, back in 2012, which released on the Xbox Live Arcade, PSN, and PC. Robomoto, who had previously released Ride and Shred, developed this one, and Activision published it, and it runs on the Unreal Engine 3. Uh, this one is a uh, kind of a remake of the first game with a lot of elements of the second game as well. It kind of has like a grab bag of levels, like a greatest hits collection uh, on the updated hardware. And they released some, uh, some DLC courses as well, which added in a few levels from Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. Uh, game rankings give this one around a 67 to a 69% on the Xbox 360 and PS3, and around a 50% on PC, and uh, there were no sales numbers for this one. But yeah, I played this one. I, I didn't really care for it. it I, I've only played the PC version, and it runs pretty terribly. It, it's just not 
it doesn't have that same feel and uh there's a lot of, uh, of screen tearing and frame dropping. It's just a really ugly experience. And then we will uh, kind of wrap up our series discussion today with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5, which released on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One in September to October of 2015, and the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 in December of 2015. This was developed again by Robomoto and uh, again ran on the Unreal 3 engine. And uh, game rankings solidly puts this one in the 33 to 39% ranking on the PS4 and Xbox One. And it's sold uh, from the numbers that VG Charts was able to estimate, which is always tricky for uh, digital sales, but it puts it around 0.43 million total sold. Yeah, gosh, I, I got to uh, review Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5 for Game Critics, and yeah, that one is uh, that one's pretty rough. It's actually probably more accurate to the original Tony Hawk games than uh than our memories would indicate like because the old Tony Hawk games if you go back to them now like they are rough by modern standards and so Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5 I think falls within that kind of rough range of uh of those older games quality standards but it, it just feels like in all of the years since then and with all the advancements in technology and uh usability and stuff like it should be well beyond um, the product that they delivered. But uh, we'll talk more on that later. I wanted to get into some uh, some influences that went into the creation of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and some of the earlier skateboarding games that some of which we talked about on uh, Kid and Rinse before and some of which are, uh, are new to me at least. And thanks to Everskate for this list, a, a skateboarding website. Of particular note are 720 Degrees, which was released in 1986, developed by Atari for the arcade. Skateboarding from 87, California Games from 87 as well. Town and Country Surf Designs, Wood and Water Rage. It's a terrible name, but uh, apparently a uh, an early 1988 NES skateboarding game. Skate or Die, which we've talked about on Cannon Rinse before which was released in 1988, as well as um, Skate or Die 2 and Tour de Thrash. ESPN Extreme Games for the PlayStation in 1995, which was rebranded in its sequels to the more familiar 2 Extreme and 3 Extreme, which I remember playing the demo of, as well as Top Skater, released by Sega in 97, and Street Skater, released in 1998 for the PlayStation. And since then, the game has kind of has gone on to inspire a number of other titles. Um, just kind of off the top of our heads, prominent games in its legacy would include Thrasher, Skate and Destroy in 1999, developed by Rockstar, which is more sophisticated but less user-friendly than Tony Hawk, so it was largely overlooked. But it was perhaps more um, direct ancestor of Skate, which was uh, another kind of Tony Hawk competitor later in time. Grind Session, which was released on the PlayStation in 2000, as well as Go Go Hyper Grind for the GameCube, Skate, which EA put out for the Xbox 360 and PS3 in 2007, as well as Skate 2, 3, and It. That is that uh, that series there. Sean White Snowboarding and Ollie Ollie, very recently. And then uh, I, I think that it's had some influence on some uh, non skateboarding games as well, including um, Jet Set Radio in its uh, grind-based exploration of these intricate environments that you're tricking off of, released by Sega in 2000 for the Dreamcast, and more. Joe Danger, put out by Hello Games on PS3 and 360, 
and Sunset Overdrive, which uh, we've mentioned uh, the Tony Hawk games as a part of the Sunset Overdrive Canon Rinse podcast issue, uh, which was put out by Insomniac in 2014. All right, that is uh, an extensive history of the series. Let's get into our personal histories with the series. Uh, Dan, how far do you go back with this one? Um, right back to a demo disc on uh, PlayStation, the official PlayStation magazine in the UK. Carl, did you play this? I was wondering if you might have the same experience of playing the demo. That's exactly the exact same experience, uh, the demo okay. disc. Um, do you remember there was a, a first, I think there were two demos. There was one that was just one minute on the Chicago level. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a later demo in, demo in the hangar that was, um, I don't know if you got it over here. I know it was released in the USA by Pizza Hut on a demo disc. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, sorry, warehouse, not hangar. <laughs> Very similar kind of level. Yes, they are. <laughs> um, so yeah, this demo that was a one minute long thing, I don't think it even had any music or if it did, it was sort of generic punk rock rather than a, a licensed song maybe. Yeah, just this one minute, I used to reload it and play it over and over and over mm. again. It just didn't feel like, I guess, anything else other than maybe like Mario 64 and uh, 3D platform games that ran sort of smoothly and uh, and had consistent within themselves physics. Um, so yeah, I just couldn't wait for the first game when it released. And uh, I think I was there pretty much day one, day two. I don't think I played anything else for a, for a good month or two months. It was... It, it really locked on to me. I, I just split up with my first girlfriend at the time as well, which probably helps with a game where you're really nerding out and learning combos and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. It just felt so free compared to anything else. I know the levels now aren't that yeah, big yeah. in the first one, but um, just the fact that you had a choice of what you could do and uh, like the different objectives and stuff, it really connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just felt like some sort of step forward in the arcade kind of game. It's got an arcadey feel to it, and it really connected. I suppose a demo really helps with that. Yeah. And Tony Hawk's Pro 2X on the Xbox never got a launch in uh, in the UK. So, mm. yeah, I'm interested to hear more about what you thought about that later on. Because um, I was always really jealous. I read about it when I was uh, researching the launch of the Xbox. It was mm. one of the thing, first things I was going to get for the console. And then we ended up not getting that released, and, uh, and I got a GameCube instead. So, <laughs> um, yeah, mm. so that not releasing here changed the console that I got. For the next for the next little while, so yeah, I went straight on to Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two a year later. I thought the manual was the perfect addition there. You wouldn't realise it from the first game, but then once you play it with the manual, as with a lot of the uh, evolutionary steps the series takes, it, um, you can't mm-hmm. imagine the game without it afterwards. And s- stepping backwards is quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. Where it sort of naturally flows into, I guess, the hand movements that you're almost doing at the time. It just sort of <laughs> flows into it naturally. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. And then, and then, so on with the uh, with the Reaver and and what have you, and uh, the spine transfer is that what it's called? Yep. Um, yeah, with all of those things, and I st- I stuck with the series until gosh, Underground Two probably, and then okay. uh, it was after that that I started uh, buying the game secondhand, maybe a year or so late, like um, yeah, uh, Project Eight. I think I did that with, and uh, what was the one before that? Uh, uh, American, American Wasteland. Wasteland. Yeah, yeah. With those, I uh, sort of waited until a little while after, and then just played a bit of them because they didn't really feel right to me. That's where I stand with it. Oh, and Tony Hawk's HD, I've played, but like with yourself, Ryan, I, it just didn't have the same feel to me. I don't know how you can get the controls off for a Tony Hawk's game. They must have like the schematics of how it worked when they first made the first game. It, I don't know how it's difficult. Mm-hmm. I guess a, a different engine maybe makes the physics not translate, even if it's technically meant to be the same. Yeah, thing. I think that's it. All right. And uh, Carl, where did you um, where did you first play this game? You were another of the demo early adopters. I, I had a sort of a, a relatively small group of friends at school and this demo disc started making the rounds on, on what would be played and uh, eventually 
my friend got a copy of it, as in an actual illegal copy, uh, as was the case with the PlayStation, because we were broke students, and I was being relatively young at the time. It, it, we'd finish school and rush to his house. It was really bizarre because it was we'd play it purely as a single player game, but it was sort of mm-hmm. the pass the controller sort of thing because, yeah, as Dan yeah. mentioned, even with the one minute demo, it was the kind of thing you could just do over and over and over again, um, mm-hmm. and and the game did that on like the, the full scale. So we'd sort of do a level, pass the controller, or you know see if the other person could do it better, or try and go through the campaign, try and get all the collectibles, try and memorize everything, and it and it became mm-hmm. sort of this pattern. Um, for like a, a couple of weeks uh, where it was really intensely playing that. Um, and this is from a group of friends that mainly only played like sports games, uh, like uh, football games and whatnot together. So to actually break out away from that was quite interesting. Now, I, I came into Tony Hawk's Pro Skater as someone who was kind of sadistic and enjoying Top Skater in the arcade, which was relatively short in, t- in terms of how you played because it was difficult and it was a pound to go. And I always wanted that game to make its way comfortably in, in into the home. So when Tony Hawk's was around uh, and it was starting to get traction in the magazines and stuff, I got genuinely excited. So for it to actually come out and sort of surpass all my expectations was, you know, kind of great. And, you know, whilst it died down and it wasn't so intense after the first few weeks, it did sort of maintain probably for the entirety of, of the next, you know, near enough the next year until we played Tony Hawk's 2, um, which was, uh, it, it's weird because the manual added everything that was missing from the first game or felt like it was missing as, as a way to link the tricks. But at the same time, it even though, you know, retrospectively, it's probably a tighter, better game than the first one. It, to me, it felt like it had lost a lot of its purity. Um, and I struggled to enjoy it like I enjoyed the first. And it had some great levels. I mean, you know, everybody references school and whatnot as, as one of the, the finer Tony Hawk's levels, and that, and that's true. But I sort of started to really sort of struggle with it in a way that I didn't with the first. And you, I could see the potential for the way that the manual was going, but the obvious lack for me was was the ability to link vert tricks in. And I thought, well, what's the point of this? I don't really want to just do grinds and flats. So, sort of, as was typical of me as a you know a sixteen year old youth, I just sort of like threw it to the side. Like this game's wronged me, um, and I, I was always really bitter about Tony Hawk's too. It's really mm. bizarre. Um, and when Tony Hawk's three started getting more footage, um, you know, his trailers were getting posted online and. Um, and it was getting this feature in the magazine. It looked like this huge, incredible game, and it was on the you know the PS2, and it was going to look fantastic. So that was one of my big Christmas games that year. So I ended up getting that for the the, the Christmas of two thousand and one. And the bug that got me with the first one was you know completely back with with three, um, to the point that I picked up four a lot later than its release. I didn't feel like I needed it. I was still playing Tony Hawk's 3, and I actually picked, ended up playing it on the GameCube. In, in in that time, I'd actually picked that console up and decided that that was the format I was going to play this on. And I just didn't like it. It's it's really weird, and it seemed mm. like it was going to soon become one of these, you know, on-off on off series for me where I was going to like every other iteration. So the, the whole gamut that came, I tried Underground, Underground 2. I uh, got American Wasteland on my Xbox 360 and really enjoyed it. And then I borrowed Project 8 off a friend and thought it was relatively atrocious. I didn't even play Proving Ground for a good two and a half years after that was out. 
and felt justified in waiting. Um, I probably should have just waited eternity, really, because that game was quite <laughs> shocking. Um, and then when Riot was announced, I was one of the ones that was just pointing and laughing, saying that this is ridiculous, and everyone was jumping, jumping on this peripheral bandwagon, and it was a case of Activision really trying to push out the plastics. I'm thinking back to you know over a decade prior playing Top Skater in the arcade, and that felt rough at the time, and the fact that Tony Hawk's 1 was the game really refreshed that idea to sort of go back to the one before that was just Mm -hmm. kind of bizarre in my mind so i think it's probably fair to say that no series has um, wronged me as much as the end of a ruined relationship as tony hawk's frustrated (laughs) it started so well um as as many do you said something else about not really being like a flatland player would that be about right i always liked the ability to link verts into uh grinds and the the fact that with two it went primarily on grinds and flats ahead of using the verts because you couldn't come out of a a ramp into a manual and keep the combos going clean whereas in obviously three they added the revert into manual and that just opened up everything this just felt like the a proper evolution i did not go to five i actually um saw ryan talking about five and i was like i don't want a piece (laughs) of that because although Proving ground, I said it was it was a really bad experience, and and Project Eight before it, I still had this sort of positivity around Tony Hawk's as a franchise, and I just knew that Five was gonna just ruin that that legacy in my mind um, because there was so many videos at the time that it came out, it was just like a complete mm. mess. Um, so yeah, I, I intentionally ignored Five for the sake of a legacy, um, but other than that, I, I played through the. Uh, one to four in in the orders that they were released. Yeah, as far as my history with the game, I also started with the demo disc, the Pizza Hut demo disc, actually, which um, I actually wrote an article about that for FanPup, about the kind of changing state of demos these days. And I think there was something really kind of magical and um, really advantageous for a lot of these newer IPs back in the days when they actually used to print demo discs because... Uh, you know, they served as kind of curated gaming experiences that uh, were freely available to you. And, you know, once you got these demo discs, like they became your new game for a month or so, you know, until you got the next one. And there's something about that, that, you know, downloading demos from the PlayStation Store or the Xbox Live Arcade or whatever, like they, they're more immediate and probably easier to get your hands on a wider array of game demos, but you're never going to seek out anything that you're not already interested in. You know, there's not that same push. Like you don't already have something just one click away. that's like, Oh, all right, well, you know, I'll try out Tony Hawk's pro skater, even though I don't have any history with skateboarding, you know, we'll see where it goes. And so I think that, that, that legacy, especially of the, uh, the demo, disc benefiting this game's ultimate sales uh, can be seen in a lot of the uh, reverence that the demo material has been given over the years particularly the uh, pizza hut demo disc with the warehouse level and the superman song by goldfinger Hmm. which you know those are right now kind of the iconic series touchstones for a lot of people and i think that's because so many people came to this game through the demo um, which is such kind of like a like a thing of its time in a way. Uh, but anyways, I uh, yeah I played 
Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. I think I actually was just happy with the demo for a very long time and uh, didn't come to the series. I didn't buy the full games because I didn't have a lot of money as a kid until Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. And then I, I bought Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 after that for the PlayStation. I picked up 3 and 4 on the GameCube. And then I stayed with the series every year with the new iterations through Underground, Underground 2, American Wasteland, and Project 8. I recently picked up Proving Ground just because I I figured I might as well give it a try. I haven't beaten it because uh, I don't think it's very good. But through Project 8, I have completed all of those Tony Hawk games for the main consoles anyways. And yes, and then I came back to HD on the PC, which again, I uh, thought was a rather rubbish port, and uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5, which I was very happy to have my free review copy of because I feel like that's uh, that's about the right price for uh, Tony Hawk's <laughs> Pro Skater 5. There there are some fun things about it, like you can skate as Octodad, which I, I like. <laughs> I wanted to give a brief r- overview of the evolution of the series uh, mechanically, and Carl's kind of touched on a lot of this already. But in the first Tony Hawk game, it was fairly limited. In the main console iterations, you are exploring a large 3D space on the back of your skateboard. Uh, You have a two-minute time limit, and you're loaded up with a uh, list of goals that you can tackle in any order, really, within these two-minute sessions. And that's kind of what made it exciting in a way, is that you had all these things that you could do, and you can go around and collect the skate letters, you can get a high score, you can score a high combo, you can get, you know, any number of these different objectives, finding hidden tapes in levels. It was fun because, you know, your first run, especially on the earlier levels where you're just kind of messing around and exploring, you're likely to tick off a couple of these boxes just naturally because, um, you know, especially if you have any history with the series, then you'll be able to pull off a couple of nice combos and that'll get you the high score and uh, and so it feels kind of immediately rewarding in that way. And it's fun to go back to earlier games with a completely new save, you know, once you've already kind of mastered the systems, because you can get, you know, just about every goal on the list in one run if you really know what you're doing. Yeah, that's when it becomes like, yeah, when you've hit the sweet spot with the game. And sometimes mm-hmm. I found that buying a new game, I was kind of doing that from the start anyway. I think that's when I started yeah, getting yeah. bored when in Underground, maybe that started happening. Mm. Yeah, the uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater introduced uh, grab tricks, flip tricks, and grinds, kind of your basic traversal mechanics. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 introduced manuals, which are for those who do not know skateboarding lingo, when you continue to ride forward balancing on the front or back two wheels of your skateboard, kind of tricky to maintain your balance. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 also introduced what has gone on to be a uh, much-beloved series staple, the Create-A-Skater and Park Editor, which were actually, I don't think this was the first, like, create, uh, I mean, I I know for sure that this wasn't the first create-a-person mode in a game, but uh, this was uh, some of the earliest and most robust for what this system allowed for, and particularly the Park Editor. Uh, There was something really cool about being able to set half pipes and um to create your own skate park and then like literally just jump into it and skate around your own creation you know that was still kind of relatively not not widely practiced before and even to this day like it's still not widely practiced at least not on consoles yeah yeah but it was something about uh yeah it kind of had that feel of like the modding scene in a way 
it kind of got you thinking, like, wouldn't it be cool if Mario 64 had a park editor? It also shows you how well designed the maps are from using the park editor. Yeah, definitely. uh, How, like, to line up just two ramps, okay? Took me ages at first to sort of (laughs) get the distance right and what feels nice. And then you think, hang on, they've made entire levels and worlds that feel like that. Sometimes it takes you to learn your own limitations to know how good something actually is. And of course, the main... uh, the main levels that Neversoft created were all very aesthetically linked as well. And so it kind of felt like you were actually skating around a school or a mall. So they weren't just lining up ramps and rails like they were doing it in the way that felt internally consistent to the world that they were creating, which is very cool. I'm, I'm super impressed by the series for that. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 introduced the revert, which allows you to come out of a vert trick off of a quarter pipe or a half pipe. Um, it's a little like a spin you do on the ground. And, uh, and from there, you can manual, which allows you to continue your combo. Uh, previously, landing a vert trick would end your combo. It introduced lip tricks, which allow you to kind of plant your board on the edge of a quarter pipe and uh, hold it there. Or you can hold your board over your head with your arm or whatever. You know, it's just kind of a, um, another kind of balance minigame in a way. And it allowed for double and triple trick modifiers, which uh, when you press the flip button especially more than once then uh it'll instead of just doing a kickflip he can do a double or a triple kickflip tony ox pro skater 3 introduced online play on the playstation 2 and tony ox pro skater 4 introduced a career mode in which the levels uh could be explored without any time limits which are similar to the way that the free skate modes worked in previous games instead you go to quest givers in a way they will give you individual challenges that you can uh you can go for so it kind of segmented things out in that way part of the reason for that was because the levels were starting to get much much bigger as the consoles were becoming more powerful so they wanted to give you more freedom to explore these larger levels um, without the time pressure tony Hawk 4 also introduced spine transfers which is uh transferring from one quarter pipe or half pipe to one immediately behind it and skitching which is holding on to the back of a car marty mcfly style the rest of the series introduced quite a few more mechanics such as the ability to get off your board in tony hawk's underground and then the nail a trick mode in project eight i believe was the first one that introduced that where it kind of slows down in slow motion and you use the two uh, thumbsticks to kick your feet in certain ways to get the board flipping all over the place And Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5 introduced stage-specific power-ups, which are uh, an interesting addition. Um, Each stage in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5 has like a collectible token that is uh, unique for that particular stage that gives you some weird power-up that feels a little at odds with the uh, mechanics of the series, such as super speed or the ability to fire projectiles from your board or... um, you can even be super large or super small or uh, moon physics, pretty much. But anyways, let's get into actually talking about the games um, and the gameplay at large. Uh, one of the interesting things about the evolving mechanics of the series, especially as it introduced manuals and reverts, is that it really changed the way in which the levels were laid out. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 especially was... Uh, perhaps notable for having the smallest levels but the most like dense levels and there was a lot of attention paid to creating lines and finding those lines um, which are usually 
gaps between grindable rails. Oftentimes you would uh, vert trick into a grind that would uh, kind of continue. And some of these, these grinding lines would take you throughout you know, most of the level even. And as the series went on, particularly in the uh, Alcatraz level, some of these lines got to be I- extraordinarily long. But that became kind of less of a focus as things moved forward, as you were given the ability to manual between uh, grinding rails. And so things didn't have to be aligned. You weren't necessarily discovering developer-created lines um, in the same way that you were in the first game, because each one would have to be very meticulously lined up to make sure that they were, you know, possible. You were kind of creating your own lines in a way. And then, of course, the revert added to your ability to do that until pretty much anything in the entire stage could be a part of your line. If you were, uh, if you had good enough manual balance, theoretically. So uh, what are your guys' experience with finding these lines and creating your own lines in the later games? It kind of relates to what we were saying about the uh, park design from that you kind of realize what they've put into it and maybe um maybe i've been fooled by the smoke and mirrors because you're um <laughs> you've looked into this a lot more deeply than i ever would have done so i've always thought that um it felt like there were lines had been planned out in kind of all directions from any given ramp but again it's probably just smoke and mirrors and that i've just been latching on to whatever's there just because that's what the mechanics and physics do in the game I do that in real life. Do you ever find yourself, not as much anymore, <laughs> but like when I was playing the game a lot, I used to think, okay, I could grind onto that bench and then over to that bin and then spin on top of that. I have to say this drove me crazy when I was a little kid playing this because I couldn't take a, a car ride anywhere sitting in the passenger seat without like looking out the window and imagining <laughs> a skateboarder yeah. going along the power lines and the, the road barriers and stuff. And like it would get to the point at which like I would be very annoyed and wish that I could stop seeing it. Um, but yeah, this uh, this infected my mind in a way that like Portal would years later. Yeah, I mean, people say it with Tetris and I've never had it with that, but Tony Hawk's is the one where I can get what the Tetris people yeah. mean. <laughs> it's strange because, you know, you play Tony Hawk's and the the very first one and you've got your run mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, you obviously it's linked to the fact that you want to try and find the hidden videotape, you want to try and get the letters, etc. Mm-hmm. And, and you're thinking you're doing these really original runs and then you hand your control over to your friend um, or you watch him play for the first time and he's not seen you play and you start realising that his run is running somewhat very similar to the direction you made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's following the same lines. And I remember when I was thinking, like... Has he been watching some videos of someone else doing it? And it turns out that that it was essentially just the design of it that it would fall in a certain yeah. manner. And um, it it does become somewhat. And I've mentioned this on other shows before, where you play in it and it becomes less of a sports game or a skateboarding game or you know what whatever kind of genre you want to attribute it to into more of a rhythm experience. You know, it becomes mm. very rhythmic as you're playing it. Um, and, and the combinations of, of buttons um, uh, to the, to your gameplay is somewhat you know musical, um, mm-hmm. and, and and there is a pattern to it uh, in its timing, and, and when that comes down, that's when it gets really sort of addictive, <laughs> ridiculously so, um, to to the point that you you have the same effect that Dan's mentioned, and um, but it always felt like was the second that you landed the vert trick, that was it. 
onto the next section and and when you were trying mm-hmm. to extend it, it 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 sort of became a problem so with two it felt like you could do it but yeah, how many times can you jump onto a grind, jump off manual, jump onto a grind before that sort of gets a bit boring as well? Um, but with each one, the, the scale uh, of the levels got bigger and it also felt like you had more freedom and, and that is where it peaked with three, which is the first time you felt like you had genuine roots on these incredibly well-designed levels. Uh, so there was a genuine sense of freedom. Now, I'm sure if you watch high-level play or speedrunners or high-combo scoring videos, they do use very similar routes because there's always a way to get the most out of something in doing it. But certainly with Tony Hawk's 3, that was the moment that it... You know, it that's where it peaked. Yeah, you know, I've mentioned on shows time and time again about the, the arcade effect, um, and it's something I've mentioned quite recently when we recorded Crazy Taxi in that there is something to that two-minute thing, in that when you go to the arcade, you put your money in. You don't expect to complete a game. You don't expect to get largely into it. You do what you can in that small window. And this is where the series goes from one way to another, and at some point they intersect with how free the levels become. So when the the game started, it was very much two minutes, do what you can, to, as you mentioned... With the likes of four, it got bigger, and then you know the later ones with the the quest givers and overworlds, or as it genuinely is, the Grand Theft Auto Three effect, where it seemed like open world had to be done a certain way, and that that's what people mm-hmm. were going to enjoy because they didn't want the narrow window of a restrictive time limit. Which for someone like me, that narrow window is what really caused the first game to shine. So somewhere between having these large open worlds or large uh, environments and the time limit they cross over and uh, for me that moment was three and that was the moment where I felt like I was still restricted by my limitations or you know keeping your score going because as, as long as you're keeping your score going the time doesn't end um, as long as you're in a combination uh, a strict time limit the collectibles which I'm always a fan of and environments that were reasonably large um, and that is where I felt like the, the the real challenge of playing the purity of Tony Hawk's 1 and the grand scale of the open world from the later ones really did intersect for the, for the best effect. Um, and it, it's really strange. It's the only one I can actually go back and play and thoroughly enjoy. You know, the first one's hmm. graphically aged technically aged with its controls and the later ones just were so far from my tastes i mean the fact that in you know tony hawks underground you could get off your board and run or drive cars i mean come on um it did start to get a little bit silly um so yeah this you know this whole finding the lines thing was something i would have liked to have maintained throughout the franchise but it's you know for me the first three games um it, that that's where that became the, the the gameplay element that I that I looked out for. Yeah, I mean, you talk about uh, some of those dictated and defined lines, like kind of the best way through the level. Right? We can all remember the warehouse. Like our route through that was going down the hill, jumping over the half pipe into the hidden room, hitting the mini rail on the other side of that, uh, grinding from that onto the uh, onto the quarter pipe that wrapped around the room, jumping off at the peninsula and hitting that other rail on the other side of the room there. And it's like, that's just the way that you go through that level because, you know, that's the highest scoring line in that room. 
And uh, and the later levels, even within this game, did start to get a little bit bigger, did start to get a little bit less um, defined in that way, with some of them being just kind of sprawling skate parks in a way, with lots of different directions to go and things to do. But I, w- I was always interested, as it opened up a little bit more, is to see people being more encouraged to express their own creativity in the way that they string together lines and kind of look at different objects and say, like, I bet I can I can get to this one from here and continue down this hill, and that will put me in front of this quarter pipe, and that will launch me up to this higher rail. And um, yeah, it's just something really cool about exploring your game environment and it basically mechanically rewarding you for thinking of the entire world around you as uh as a player character almost like you are manipulating this space to suit uh you know the best combo by way of just being clever about how you're grinding and jumping around it i learned pretty much everything that i know about uh, about level design from this game from this series and Katamari Damacy because I think that they fulfill very similar roles in that it's like, you know, create a world that is jam-packed with with really intelligent um, jump-off points for interesting situations and fun scenarios, set up little challenges and just kind of hide them in plain sight. And people might not even know that they're being challenged to do something unless they look at it in a certain way. Like, you know, you would see two rails sitting right next to each other and you wouldn't even know that the designers had, uh, you know, somehow linked two uh, long lines off of these rails unless you are looking for it and really being creative about the way that you're looking at the level. And that's why one of my favorite things about these games is collecting the gaps Uh, Because these are, if you trick between two quarter pipes or two rails or, you know, from uh, two rooftops or, you know, just going between two objects, whatever they would be, it indicates that it is a named gap. And there are a certain number of these gaps in every level that you are tasked to find for 100% completion. They're like micro achievements in a way, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to think about it, actually. Um, Some of them are very descriptive from their names, like, you know, off the water tower or something, you would uh, be able to, with some in, in some short order, be able to figure out how you would get that one. Some of them are a little bit trickier. Uh, some of them actually are named after some of the real world inspirations of, of where you're skating. And so you can learn a little bit about your environment in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, did you guys ever get obsessed with uh, finding these gaps? I got obsessed with everything in the first game. <laughs> um, no, it, it. I mean, it's not even a joke. It, it got ridiculous. Everything had to be checked off. I had to have. Not only did I have to find all the hidden tips and all the letters, I had to be able to do them all in one perfect run. Um, I had to find all the gaps. They all had to be checked off on the list. I mean, this game was done. Like this, this, yeah. this was like everything got checked off. Um, and I, like that again, that only built my excitement for two because um, this, this is pre-achievement days where you really had to be pushed to want to get everything. And I guess that's still the case with achievements, which sounds ridiculous, but mm. at, at least with achievements, there is this record log and, and other people can check in on what you've done and whatnot. And, you know, by predating this, this was purely a solo endeavor that 
as you were only pleasing yourself. But in that regard, the fact that there was a very clear list of things to do in this game, being able to complete the whole lot was incredibly satisfying. Um, and I wanted to, you know, be perfect at this game, which is silly because there's always someone better or someone doing something far more impressive. But for me, that was, that was you know, running the the entire gamut of of options in the game. Um, so yeah, all those gaps had to be found. Um, and <laughs> the, the other thing that that some listeners who may be um, a little bit younger may not get this this is at a time when it wasn't always so easy to just log on um, and find guides, like find a million guides on the internet. Um, they did exist. Finding them wasn't always the easiest. So you would often have to wait a month or two months and, and you'd run to the nearest news agent and flick through all the magazines. Do these have the guide in for it? You know, you're, you're skimming all the pages of um, CVG and Games Master and whatnot. And, and, you know, sometimes there's the one because, as you said, some were quite obvious. Others, less so. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, and open to interpretation and and then of course there were the many times you'd look into it and you go oh yeah that's really cool and you try and remember that um so it, it it's not something that necessarily got polished off quickly um which for me added to the the, the entire satisfaction of, of polishing them all off but yeah absolutely had to check everything off in in the first game i did the same for the first game and then i think for the second one i did all the gaps and then by the time it got to the third i looked at the list and thought I'm going to lose my life if I try and do this. I'm just not going to look at it yeah. again. And I'll just treat each one as a bonus from now on because otherwise it teaches you to experiment with the levels, doesn't it? I suppose. But as those mm-hmm. levels become broader and, and more expansive, then it just, it's more and more time it's going to be to fill this list. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, that's exactly it. It, it's, it encourages alternate methods of play, and, and and that's a perfect description, and it's something I've used to describe achievements many times in the past, that sometimes it would take you out of your natural comfort zone in how you're going to approach the game, um, and it can promote playing things in different ways. And I, th- I think that having those lists in Tony Hawk's benefited it um, way more than people may have, at least on the surface, thought without actually thinking about it and how it would have encouraged that longevity I think not only for my own satisfaction was it good, but for encouraging me to play it in ways that without that list, I probably never would have. I want to talk a bit about the aesthetic design of these levels as well, in that you weren't just skating around skate parks. Like There would be the occasional skate park, but uh, this game did two things that were pretty unique. And one, it, uh, I mean, it mixed it up and allowed you to skate in some pretty uh, silly places that you'd never be able to skate otherwise, such as... Uh, uh, like a dance club in London or uh, Roswell, New Mexico. Um, you can skate in Skate Heaven in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, which was obviously like a very fictionalized outer space, um, you know, idealized skate park kind of place. But it would also set a lot of its courses in real places. Uh, and, you know, for those of you who have been following the Kane YouTube channel, um, I've been doing a series on there that is looking at um, digital recreations of real spaces within video games called Waypoint. And um, and so that is something that interests me quite a bit to see how these uh, real life spaces are um, translated into video game spaces, what they choose to keep, what they choose to change, especially in a series like this that involves such meticulous uh, setup and planning for um, creating lines and making these 
real life places skatable. In particular, I've been, uh, um, as I had already plugged earlier in the show, uh, there is a video on the YouTube channel um, that looks at the San Francisco levels in both Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 and going into some of the local skate history of that space and um, in particular the uh, Embarcadero district and some of the um, skateboarding history that took place there around um, the Justin Herman Plaza in Pier 7 and Third and Army and these these big spots that are big in real life and it's cool to see that level of reverence for just real life street skating spots, hubs of attention, uh, you know, Burnside and Portland and, um, you know, the, the places in San Francisco and the places that like really created skateboarding uh, and particularly street skateboarding um, have been kind of meticulously uh, documented and um, recreated in these uh in these games it's a good way of like paying reverence for those who came before and it shows that the team was really kind of on board with this type of thing and i'm not sure of uh of their skateboarding history before creating these games or whether these guys just kind of hit the books and got to talking with people and did some of the more on the ground research themselves when they were already assigned to the project. But there, there is something that feels like really authentic about their understanding of the history and culture of street skating. They did the same with um, the London South Bank. It's not um, in exactly the same place in the city that it would be. Like, it's not a perfect recreation of London by any means, but uh, mm-hmm. the South Bank, which is a place where people have skated for many, many years. I think, uh, I think it may have been closed down now in the past couple of years, but yeah, they um, they managed to sort of yeah show that knowledge of the real life skating skating world. You know, it's a mm-hmm. yeah a real real plus for the series. Yeah, yeah. Is it shrinkage that makes an area playable? Is that kind of what they've done? Because I've been to the area of San Francisco, and I guess it's um, yeah. you're right. It's a great recreation, and I guess mm-hmm. making it playable is just making it shrink, but n- not enough that people that have ever been there would kind of notice it too much. Does that make sense? Well, the thing is that uh, I guess it very much depends from level to level, but uh, you know, you you you, um, you hear about uh, like Grand Theft Auto Five as a recreation of Los Angeles is fairly accurate, and people who live in Los Angeles could navigate in Grand Theft Auto Five to some degree of accuracy. But obviously, you know, to condense it down to game size, they had to remove quite a bit of the city, and um, I had the opportunity to. Uh, play some Grand Theft Auto V with one of my friends who currently lives in Hollywood. And he was telling me the entire time, like, oh, this building should be, you know, three blocks that way. And they removed this entire shopping center and this and that, um, which is cool. And, uh, but the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series does that to an even greater degree. And it almost plays like, uh, like political cartoons of each of these uh, cities in that, these levels are, you know, for open worlds, they're pretty self-contained and they're pretty small. Even when they did start getting into um, the more kind of uh, the the larger levels in the later Tony Hawk games, but they they did a good job of taking a lot of the more recognizable spots and sometimes also the less recognizable but more influential in the history of skateboarding spots in these various cities and. Uh, Kind of mashing them together, condensing them into one space, kind of like a like Dark Souls three, <laughs> in a way. 
Um, it's like all of the great skateboarding spots have migrated to the center. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you'll see in the uh, San Francisco level in Tony Hawk 4, the Justin Herman Plaza is right across the street from Third and Army, which is, you know, just a couple blocks away from Pier 39, which isn't at all accurate. But uh, they are just kind of like little windows into these different parts of the city. And um, obviously a lot has been retooled to make them skatable. They, they kind of serve as like greatest hits versions of these various cities. Um, I, I had a weird opportunity once. Well, I was in San Diego and I was at, and I'm not going to remember the name of the park now, but it's where the uh, big outdoor amphitheater is with the um, botanical gardens. It's, it's a very famous spot, but... I was walking along this walkway, kind of coming up to a fountain, and I had this, this weirdest feeling that, like, of major deja vu. And I realized pretty quickly that it's because, like, this exact spot had been recreated in a Tony Hawk game. And I just, it's kind of paralyzing in a way, because it's like, I know where I am, and I know that that detail and that detail is different in the version that I'm familiar with, and I've never been here before, but I feel like I've been here for, you know, days of my life. And um, yeah, that that's really, really weird. Have you guys, uh, I mean, obviously you would have been to London, but have you been into uh, any of the other places that this series has recreated? I've been to Portland, um, and I've been to Burnside Street, but not the skate park itself. Okay. But somehow they nail the atmosphere of the place you know like like you say yeah. it's kind of um yeah like a, a cartoon version of these places isn't it um yeah uh i'm trying to think of anything anywhere else uh san francisco um and la but not necessarily the skateboarding parts of them and and marseille mm-hmm. but um but again it's that they nail the lighting and the feel and the mood of mm. places quite well i've not been to any of them now that i think about it now i feel disappointed with my life <laughs> have you been to london carl well, I went through London. Uh, <laughs> I don't like to stay in there any longer than needed. So do you guys tend to prefer the ones that are kind of recreations of real spaces, or do you like the uh, the sillier ones, like the cruise uh, ship? Oh, what are some of the other really good ones? There was the zoo in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4, and a lot of these places that are not based on you know one location in particular, but are kind of like a prototype of, um, or a stereotype of a uh, a place where you would never ever ever get the chance to skate um ever in the world but it's it's neat that you get the opportunity to uh, at least dig around with it in the Tony Hawk series. Now it's strange because my two very favorite levels um in in the entire franchise one is mm-hmm. the cruise ship which you've mentioned which is a mm-hmm. silly level but utterly fantastic for combo keeping and yeah. the other was Canada also from Tony yeah, Hawk's yeah. Three, which uh, is in, in, plays very heavy on the stereotype of Canada, um, <laughs> comically so when you grind past people and everyone's going, "Hey, <laughs> you know, you get down um, from there, you hoser." <laughs> yeah, it, it is pretty funny, but is obviously based on a sense of realism because, mm-hmm. um, well, because Canada is a real place first of all, but secondly, it, <laughs> it plays on features of Canada. In, in, in its design with, you know, the, the, the tall maples and, and you know, the mm. uh, the voices of the people and, and the overall, you know, as, as Dan said, the atmosphere of Canada. Like, it looks like Canada and, and plays mm-hmm. um, as, as such. And so <laughs> I don't really have a preference. There's just whatever felt the tightest to me to play. 
um, that I felt that I could enjoy the most, express myself the most, um, and possibly the most challenging. Um, so it, I didn't lean one way or the other. It's just whichever ones that felt the best to me to play. Um, and, and as long as they were tight, um, I, I, then I was entirely happy. So yeah, for me, those are the the pinnacle levels of the franchise. And I, mm. I'm sure everyone has the favourites. You know, people mention Warehouse, people mention School. Um, as probably the two strongest uh, contenders. I'd be interested uh, to hear you guys' strongest levels. Um, uh, I enjoyed, uh, was it Manhattan? I can't, can't remember the actual name of the, the level yeah, there was a, There was one in New York City in Tony Hawk 2. Well, there has to be one in New York City. It's a video game. And the one where there's an earthquake in... In LA? In LA. That would that yep. I, I did enjoy that level immensely. Because, yeah, you trigger the earthquake by yes. grinding a few rails, and that would transform the course in a way. It would break the freeway up above. Yeah, that, I, I always thought that that was a really cool effect. Um, and and I, there was a fair few levels in, funnily enough, American Wasteland that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was the last truly good Tony Hawk's game. Um, but yeah, if I if I was you know told i had to pick my absolute favorite it's canada but the mm. cruise ship definitely follows you know near, near just behind it i think i fall into the very stereotypical um sort of warehouse school school to hangar <laughs> kind of guy but um they're my sort of absolute favorites but other than that i'm not that discerning i like them all <laughs> I, yeah. I think i enjoy all of them in uh, especially as um carl mentioned there's a sort of element of humor to it all so mm-hmm. Whether it's a, a real life location or a, a made up like zoo or something like that, there's um, there's just a joy in seeing what the Tony Hawk's team have created of this space. You know, like yeah, yeah. what silly jokes and things they would have thrown in there. I'm a real sucker for Tony Hawk's Four, though. Um, mm-hmm. Every level in that, I can just happily get lost in for hours. I think it's um, you know, what we were saying about where you kind of go go through life and try and plan the lines. Do you think mm-hmm. the developers, like, if we as players felt that, I imagine the developers would have done. And oh, uh, Tony Hawk's 4 feels a bit more like um, Tony Hawk's player simulator, you know, where it's um, it's like you're going around the, quotes real world um, without the time limit and stuff. It's like your thought process when you're in that sort of mode mm. of, like you say, looking out the car window or or something like that. So, yeah, everything in 4, I'm a, yeah, a real sucker for, and I love... <laughs> all of them in that game but I, again i could play any of them you could give me any of them as a demo and i would happily play that on a two minute run for the rest of my life in particular one that i wanted to point out that probably not a lot of people would have played um i featured it in the uh the waypoint video on the youtube channel of the, uh, the tony hawks pro skater last levels i called that video and uh, this one is little big world from tony hawks pro skater 4 which was only on the playstation 1 version of the game so those who still would have been playing on the last-gen version of it. Um, but it's kind of the final unlockable in the game, and it's something that's really brilliant that I'm surprised they didn't bring back for other games. But you are uh, basically shrunk down and are skating on a kitchen counter, and you can grind off of, uh, of forks and spatulas and uh, matchboxes, and uh, you can spine transfer over a cookbook that's on its, uh, its kind of face down on the counter, and... Um, there's a big old refrigerator, and it, it's not as creative. Um, like there's not a lot of verticality to it. There's not a lot of, of different layers or secret areas or anything. But I, I just really like that uh, 
a kind of silly aesthetic uh, detail there, especially since, you know, when I was a kid, we used to play with the little tech deck finger skateboards. And uh, so it's probably very similar to the experience that we were having with those. Did you ever play Disney Extreme Skate Adventure? You know, I was aware of it. And uh, I don't, that wasn't a Neversoft game, was it? Uh, it was Toys for Bob memories. and Vicarious Vision. Um, Vicarious okay. Visions would have made Little Big World, right? Because, or or Toys for Bob. One of the, or, or was it Shabba Games? It might have been them. But they're both teams that had history with the Tony Hawk series okay. on lesser platforms, and they made that, I which see. yeah does include sort of the micro machines feel of going around kitchens yeah, yeah. and because there were some so, um, uh, Toy Story branded levels in there as well. Yeah, yeah, um, you might enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll probably go back to it at some point. It does feel um, like Tony Hawk's with uh, it. It's essentially a Tony Hawk's mm-hmm. game with Disney. Yeah, branding. sure. But I also like. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the levels in Tony Hawk Four. Even though I don't like a lot about that game, uh, a lot of the other details, such as like going to find the quest givers and a lot of the humor that was being introduced there, and some of the stories that they would tell, I thought were a little juvenile. But um, I think the levels are pretty top notch. I've already mentioned San Francisco. Uh, the Alcatraz level is pretty incredible. I've I've also been to the real life Alcatraz um, as a visitor, not as a detainee, but um, it is like stunningly accurate to the Tony Hawk version as well. Um, the layout of it is uh, is pretty incredible. I liked the zoo level just because it's fun to skate around at a place where I feel like I'm not allowed. And that's pretty much what, uh, that's one of the big like escapism elements of this series. It's just like going somewhere where you probably aren't going to be allowed, um, but there's no consequences. You are free to explore. You're free to do whatever you want. You can knock people over and grind on top of cop cars. And it's just real kind of like escapism in the purest sense in that way. This is something I remember. I was only young, um, coming in towards the late 80s, early 90s. But there was a real culture uh, hit of skateboarding Mm -hmm. around that time. Um, And it was almost seen in a negative light. There was this community of kids causing trouble and um, almost gang-like behavior. And this is obviously how it was seen on the news and whatnot and, and what was right or wrong and... It's not like skateboarding was brand new at that point, but um, the way the way the media was leaning, and it was you were becoming more and more aware of skateboarding coming through another peak uh, of popularity, and there was this whole thing of like no skate zones and uh, people the the mentality that people would want to break into locations to skate them and and hit these spots and stuff, um, and it always stuck with me. Uh, through until I played this and the level that always got me for that was the mall going through it because it was mm. always seen that malls were incredible no skate zones that people always wanted to you know break into uh, mm-hmm. and skate I mean this may not or may not may have or may not have been the case but this is from me being six to eight years old and and watching the news and you know high of imagination and stuff and and, and seeing these TV shows and movies and and the news and etc of, of people skateboarding in these areas and being seen in a certain light. You know, the, 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 if if you're a skateboarder, you were a bit against the law. You know, anti-authority etc. And the levels that sort of leaned in that direction always sort of struck a chord with me. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously the mole is is a, is a very obvious one for that. School being another um, that, that, ju- that just makes me smile to how I always envisioned skateboarding yeah. being as a youth. There was a lot of that countercultural attitude being displayed throughout the series, and a lot of it does come across as being very juvenile, but um, you know, kind of thumbing your nose at authority in a lot of the ways yeah. that like other groups of people are depicted later in the series. Like I remember in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4, the uh, college level has these these big dumb football jocks and it's like, you know, obviously like the developers of the game were picked on when they were in college or whatever. So they're using this opportunity to get back at them in a very simplistic kind of way. But there's also like a certain, uh, definitely like a through line of the series of being very anti-authority and being very like, freedom of the people kind of things like uh you know from the very beginning um in the uh the streets level uh, set in san francisco of tony hawk's pro skater one you have the uh, police car parked at the donut donut shop with the pig in the window and yes. um all these kind of like you know jabs in that direction a lot of uh um, anti-police sentimentality which fits very well with the skateboarding culture of the time uh, you have the reoccurring Officer Dick character, uh, unlockable character throughout the series, who's this kind of big, dumb police officer who ends up, I believe, as a zombie in uh, in Project 8. Again, like a real understanding of the real world skateboarding culture as well. Uh, I, I pointed out in the Waypoint video on San Francisco that the streets level in uh, in San Francisco in Tony Hawk 1 has a an EMB spray paint tag which um, is the, you know, the the name of the people who would skate the Embarcadero district. Like that's what they would call themselves. And, uh, and, and so it's interesting to see that like they actually did do their research. They kind of got in touch with the um, attitude and culture of these people. And in a lot of ways, like they brought this more kind of countercultural uh, movement into the mainstream. You know, they were uh, kind of, they introduced skateboarding and street skating to an entire generation of people in a way made it a lot more accessible than it would have been otherwise but i think that these games are kind of a master class in designing levels and in a real like intelligent dense um purposeful level design and i think they really like went a long way towards teaching a lot of these, um, a lot of the way that later, especially open world games, are designed. Um, probably the most direct ancestor being uh, Sunset Overdrive. Recently, it's like I don't think that game could exist without everything that we've learned from the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series. When the levels are uh, are good, they're really good mm-hmm. in Tony Hawk's. But mm-hmm. I always felt like every game had its fair share of duffers. Yeah, it's fair. In a strange way, the one thing I've always held against the Tony Hawk's games is that Tony Hawk's came about and caught a cultural wave of success. You know, technically it was a very good game. It had a soundtrack, which is, you know, everyone talks about Superman. Superman is the theme of Tony Hawk, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and and there's, there's many tracks in, in the game that, you know, match up and are incredibly memorable, and it, and it had this sort of cultural awareness of its time. And then hmm. that continued with the second game. Then the third game tried to add new stuff. Uh, it added online multiplayer, 
And I felt like this is when it was a it, 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 zenith. This was when you know it, it it knew what it wanted to be, and it was incredibly solid. And then we had Grand Theft Auto Three, and Grand Theft Auto Three changed gaming in that generation. You know, it, it was the the biggest game on PS2 that year, and it had this incredible 3D open world that you could explore and do things in, and it almost felt like Tony Hawk's was the big game. And, it, it, you know, it's not the first big game. You know, we've seen the likes of Need for Speed do exactly the same thing. It was the Christmas number one guaranteed every year. Tony Hawk's had this. It had, it had a, a backing of support behind it. And it felt like they've gone, well, we, we, need, we need to add open world to compete with Grand Theft Auto 3. That, that Grand Theft Auto 3 is offering this. We, we need to do something. So we're going to do this, these big hub worlds with, with quest givers, etc. So it's gone down that route. And then they've gone, well, you know, what, what do we do now? And they've, they've gone with American Wasteland. They've gone, well, we'll continue with the same thing. We'll do it bigger in its next generation. And then that hasn't worked. Suddenly the franchise is on a downwards cycle. And like, well, we need to get more cultural significance what, what we'll, we'll add Bam Margera you know Jackass is incredibly mm, popular yeah. in this period of time so they start chasing that crowd of people that might get people back into the franchise and it's almost like they're unaware that the reason Tony Hawk's clicked with people wasn't because of what it was saying or what it was doing or, or the kind of game it was trying to be it was because at its very core it was an incredibly polished solid to control game Mm-hmm. From a technical aspect, it was excellent, and I mentioned Need for Speed have done exactly the same thing. If you watch, if you actually look through that franchise, they've been chasing what's culturally popular at the time instead of trying to just continue along the path and make something incredibly solid. Um, and, and it's something that Skate did from EA. They went, well, we're just going to make a skateboarding game, a really, so- and, and they they made a fantastic one. And, and people who really wanted to play skateboarding games went to that franchise away from Tony Hawk's. It really, really annoys me that that in chasing something that it felt like the franchise the franchise needed to be, it actually lost what made it so good in the first yeah. place. I think it started getting weighed down by a lot of uh, of extra mechanics as well. Um, the nail a trick mode in Project Eight felt really unnecessary. I mean, obviously, the the great example of all of this was everything that they um, burdened. Uh, Tony Hawk's Underground and Underground 2 especially with uh, with that uh, kind of jackass-inspired storyline and the riding around a mechanical bull in one of the levels. And it just got very, very silly and uh, distracted from a lot of the actual skateboarding. And, you know, now it was more story-focused when they really didn't have the riders to deliver a good story. And it became, um, you know, they, they started really kind of introducing a lot more elements that weren't of the same quality as the core gameplay, which was, you know, I I went back to Underground and Underground 2 fairly recently, and I'll say that, like, if you're going to go back to any Tony Hawk game, like, those still play the best, and those still feel the best of any of them. Um, But, you know, there's just a lot of extra stuff that you kind of have to slog through that brings down the experience. It was unnecessary. When Tony Hawk's kind of took over the not took over, uh, moved towards the open world thing with Underground. But I was just thinking, it's like other games at the time were trying to squeeze in games feeling like Tony Hawk without a skateboard, like where you had free running coming through in Prince of Persia Sands of Time to give that, uh, where there's a line that you have to take mm, to yeah. 
to get to certain places and or where superpowers are added like uh, in was it Spider-Man 2 was that Neversoft themselves or was that another Vicarious Visions uh, I believe Neversoft actually only did the first Spider-Man yeah I think that's right okay yeah. Oh, oh no, the one, the one tied in with the movie. You know, the again, the GTA three inspired mm-hmm. Spider Man, um, and then the Hulk one and Prototype and Crackdown and Saints Row four. They've all got these sort of the feel of mm-hmm. that movement through a Tony Hawk's world, I guess, in a funny way yeah. by adding things like superpowers because they can't just put a skateboard on their feet. Um, <laughs> I think other games have kind of fallen into that space of what. Tony Hawk's used to mean to us, but as Carl says, it's not that same arcade experience. If uh, mm. like skates all well and good, but it's not a Tony Hawk's game to me. It's never sort of I connected mean, in the same way. One of the fundamentals of games design is you cannot chase. Don't chase another franchise because that franchise is mm. both established and only going to get better. So you're you're chasing what that game did in development years prior and that, that's why chasing something like grand theft auto 3 which you know in, in retrospect you look at it now and you think it's laughable anyone tries to chase gta because that rockstar can just make bigger and better than anyone else they've got the they've got the funding and the finance and the time to do it but obviously at the time when gta 3 changed everything people were chasing that formula well that's the formula they did then you know their next one which was Vice City, was further, and, and, and so on and so forth. And Activision really fell down this trap. I, I think that uh, that following in a progenitor's footsteps does help lead to the proliferation of a genre. Um, like, if nobody had copied Doom, then, you know, we might still be playing games that are very kind of narrow, narrowly focused. And it was because people copied the basic formula and then, you know, kind of expanded it in their own direction that mm-hmm. we have you know, such a diverse first-person shooter market. And, you know, nowadays there's open-world Grand Theft Auto-type games that I would argue do Grand Theft Auto better than Grand Theft Auto is doing. Like, uh, you know, Sleeping Dogs, I love that game and I love what it's doing more than GTA 4, certainly. Uh, you know, probably, like, it, it's, it can go either way, depending on the day for me and GTA 5. I mean, you can tweak the formula. The, the problem is when you're chasing the exact formula. This is where it differs. Yeah. Like, how many Doom clones did we get, right? We had we had games that went off on their own path, maybe borrowed ideas, but we had games that just flat out tried to be Doom. Now, yeah. this, this is where things get crazy, and you look at something like Saints Row, right? Saints Row 1 tried to be Grand Theft Auto. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was ridiculous. Gangs and you know the the three D world driving and, and you know the, all the way the story. And they realised if we can't match Grand Theft Auto, it, it's ridiculous. Again, they've got a bigger, better budget, bigger team. So they decided, well, we'll use the you know we'll use the outlines of what they tried, but we'll just be ridiculous with it. We'll 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 just make it a laugh. And a joke around, so they did with Central Two, and the, the you know, by utilizing core elements of that formula, but actually just you know, blazing a trail in their own direction, they created a franchise which is now viable. You know, Central Row's popular mm-hmm. again. But if they'd tried to do Central Two the exact same way they did Central One, I'd have been stunned if we'd have seen a Central Three and Four. The yeah. problem yeah, we've certainly. got here is that Tony Hawk's franchise never learned. One more thing that I want to talk about before we get into the community correspondence is the uh, the multiplayer. I didn't spend a ton of time with the multiplayer before. All of this would have been 
uh, split screen in the first couple games, and then uh, there was some online play once you got into three and beyond um, options. But I, I remember it always had really interesting multiplayer offerings, not just uh, you know a score attacks or something like that, which would have been really easy to implement. But um, there were some really cool like pass the controller uh, horse modes where you can yeah. challenge people to do a very specific set of actions and um, you perform a specific trick over a specific gap or something. And all of these could be done on any of the in-game levels, uh, really kind of encouraging the creativity of um, the people who are playing. And uh, as well as one that it's really stuck with me over time. And I'm sure this isn't the first time that this type of gameplay has been done, but it was the one that uh, kind of really got under my skin Um but the, uh, I don't remember what it was called, like a tag battle or something, where one team would be, a, or one player would be the red player, one player would be the blue player, and they would just skate all over the level. And if they tricked off of an object, then that object would become their yeah. color. And the object of the, uh, the objective is to have the, um, the most objects in your color by the end of the mm-hmm. two minute run or however long it was. You mean that original mode that Splatoon did? <laughs> yeah yeah well that's the thing is that like yeah I, that is pretty much splatoon as well and i i wonder if splatoon was inspired by tony hawk in that way especially because they uh kind of co-op a lot of the skateboarding uh fashion and you know that type of stuff in that game as well but uh i remember having a lot of fun with that uh tag battle did did any of you guys have uh memories with the multiplayer I played a little of it, but it was one of those games where um, other people that were good at Tony Hawk's would just want to play past the pad mode and see how many we could get in two minutes, <laughs> well, like the highest score we could get in two minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like we played horse for a little bit, but I think what we found with that is that I think there's two different types of Tony Hawk's players. There's people that hold a trick and people who, like until the longest point, try and hold one trick and then land that. Or mm-hmm. they're sort of clicking about the pad as if you're like a fevered madman going in between like trying to squeeze as many tricks in as you can in that given time and uh and i always found myself playing against the other type of person and it <laughs> and it made horse like whoever started <laughs> would win every time because the other mm. person didn't play in that way mm. um but yeah i played a bit here and there but it was mostly um yeah past the pad kind of stuff a little bit of horse um just a, a bit of a daft laugh really um for sh- filling in short sessions did do tag battle a lot more that was very good because it encouraged, again, you couldn't really utilize the lines that you wanted to use. You had to break off to try mm-hmm. and take specific parts of the park. Or if you you know, you know saw a player in certain areas, you would immediately go and target the opposite areas and try and flesh out as many as you possibly could, knowing that if you fleshed out a wider range, it was more for them to take so you could quickly try and capitalize on the ones that they'd taken. And that was a really good mod. Um, it could get a little bit competitive. Or you could even steal their tagged objects as well if you got a higher score off of That's that object. It. And so exactly. if you did a... If you did a long enough combo, then you know there's no way like you can really lock in a portion of the stage. That that and that was it. There was actually you know a, a sense of strategy to how you could approach that mode, and it was fun. But as as I alluded to earlier in the show, the the, the mode I made played primarily with friends was past the pad mode. I mean, any game mm-hmm. that has a two minute time limit does sort of lend itself to that. Games like Crazy Taxi and you know Big Regating Wheeler, Top Skater. Um, all those kinds of games with very short time cycles were always uh, a, a, an absolute winner for me. 
Yeah, always some really neat stuff. Um, and then one thing I, I liked about the series as well, um, you know, I've kind of spoken a little poorly about its sense of humor, but I always liked its Easter eggs and its secrets and unlockables and cheats and stuff. Um, it had a, a lot of really fun characters that were usually licensed from other properties that the, uh, oftentimes other properties that the studio was working on at the same time. So in Tony Ox Pro Skater 2, you very famously got to skate as Spider-Man. Um, and then that would go on in, in Pro Skater 3. You got to skate as Wolverine, Darth Maul, um, among others, uh, the Doom guy on the PC version. Uh, in Pro Skater 4, you got to skate as uh, the Iron Maiden Eddie um, mascot, as well as Jango Fett from Star Wars Episode 2. And in uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 5, you got to skate as one of the Ninja Turtles. You got to skate as Octodad, which is cool. And uh, you got to skate as Lil Wayne, which is weird because <laughs> none of his songs are on the soundtrack. So I, I guess they got his likeness, but didn't bother with his music, which is, you know, fine with me. But yeah, it just seems like a really odd choice there. I've always had a soft spot for character sharing across games. And it's something that you do see in the sort of the yeah, indie yeah. gaming sector these days. Um, mm. And, and uh, you know, even today I was smiling at the fact that in Shovel Knight's appearing in Ukulele, uh, for example. Yeah. Um, so to see something that was not only not indie, but actually an incredibly strong franchise at the time, less so for five, uh, utilizing it, it is always kind of funny. But at the, at the same time, it's I always wanted to be one of the professional skaters. I was always I always liked to play as Bob Burnquist for some reason. Um, Yay, Bob Bunkers for the win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although Rodney Mullen took me for a while because of the street skating, like the sort of flatland stuff. Exactly, the uh, the manuals in, into switches and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like by four, Rodney Mullen's style kind of suited that game for me a bit. Better. Well, his mm. real life style. I suppose I could have yeah. like built up the stats yeah. with anyone, but yeah. I love that they put in uh, the like individual individual moves for uh, Spider Man and Django Fett and yeah, Darth Maul right. and stuff. You know, <laughs> uh, they actually there's such attention to detail with the ethos of that character and uh, yeah, nods mm. to their own franchises in the names of tricks and stuff. That was great, as well as they always had a very robust cheat system. Uh, some of the cheats you would unlock through gameplay. Sometimes you could just enter a, a button combination to get all the cheats. But uh, this was kind of in the era of. Um, you know, late PS1 era, early PS2 era was kind of the time in which silly cheats existed, which they really don't anymore to a great degree, which is unfortunate. Big head DLC. Yeah, only if they can fleece you for money. Right. Yeah, but, um, you know, back in those days, you used to get silly characters, you used to get the big head modes, you used to get the... Uh, these games were very famous for having a perfect rail and perfect manual, which were, uh, you know, you didn't have to do the balancing anymore. And if you found a the ever-coveted circular rail, then you can just stay on that for hours and uh, rack up a high score that way. And uh, it had the, uh, the moon gravity, which would allow you to do ridiculous jumps into the air, uh, as well as a lot of, of, of silly stuff as well, which were always greatly appreciated. Uh, and then one of my favorite types of Easter eggs is uh, introduced in, definitely in 4, it might have been, yeah, there's, there's uh, some of it in 3 as well, but having uh, secret areas, yeah, even in 2 had uh, some secret areas in the levels, and um, these are areas that you would probably not 
come across unless you were unless you do something very specific to trigger them opening up or something like in uh very famously in the first level of tony hawk's pro skater 2 the hangar um, there was a secret room that you can enter by grinding a i guess propeller that's mounted on the wall in the uh half pipe in the first room uh, which would take you to uh, another room that was full of floating money that you could pick up and that was um had some uh, some great vert ramps on it and you could also grind the blades of the helicopter in the second room to open the door to the outside, which was really cool. And it made the discovery a lot more rewarding and a lot more fun. And it felt like uh, it felt like you were really getting away with something, you know. And always kept like an air of mystery about these uh, courses as well. And then, of course, they've kept that up with the later games in the series and you know sometimes you'd be skating on a course for weeks and then suddenly discover like oh i can get inside this building and there's a lot to do in here and stuff which i always really appreciated any favorite memories of a uh, easter eggs or secret areas or anything it sort of fleshed out the package didn't it It made you feel like um mm. that they'd gone the extra mile um that's what i just love about any of them i, have, I, I can't think of any real standouts other than than those we've, we've mentioned but yeah the fact that they it makes it feel like there was a bit of love to the series, you know? Yeah. You know, very much of its time to do stuff like that as well. Um, and, and it's something mm-hmm. I do long for. I always remember games um, really stuffing their games full of content, um, full of additional features, full of additional modes, content, characters, etc. Um, again, before they could actually sell it to you. I mean, a prime example would be like Tekken, having Tekken Ball, and then uh, having the likes of te- like the Tekken Adventure mode, where you go through like side-scrolling Streets of Rage style, and you think you know for a fact they wouldn't add those into those games these days because yeah. they the charge you for it separately and bang it out at fifteen quid and twenty dollars or whatnot. And the, the fact that the Tony Hawk's games had all these at the time um, felt like you were getting your money's worth and I mean obviously there's an irony there to the yeah. fact that I played one as a pirated copy but um, in regards to all the others um, you, it was more than bang for your book it was just an incredible uh, amount of content that you were getting in these games and that they were kept so secret again of its time because as, as everyone's aware now if a game has something hidden or secret or an easter egg or something you'll find it on the internet before that game has even hit retail. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so the fact that you could actually play these games and weeks down the line come across something, or at times even longer, was was always incredibly rewarding. Yeah, and we're starting to see some of these uh, sillier extras being reintroduced in the video games. I know that uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider and Uncharted 4 have some silly unlockable extras, which I appreciate I hope to see more of that in the future. Put more of the more of the fun back in video gaming. All right, let's hop over to our community. And uh, we got quite a bit of correspondence today as these games were very popular at the time and a lot of people have a lot to say on it. So let's go ahead and start off on uh, some of the written correspondences we have from our community members over at canonrinse.com slash forum. Or you can choose to email us at podcast at canonrinse.com if you have anything to say about any of our upcoming issues. Seanus Thomas says, The controls were super tight. The levels struck that fine balance between being open and experimental, but hid secrets and alternate routes cleverly, and there were payoffs with rewards every minute invested. If developers could bottle this learning curve, unlockables, and fun of this title, they'd always be on to a winner. 
Alex79UK says, My love for skateboarding games goes right back to both 720 in the arcades and the brutally difficult half-pipe section in the seminal summer classic California games. I remember the demo of the first Tony Hawk game hitting the disc of the official PlayStation magazine back in the day and just playing it over and over again. It was amazing. You were given the entire first stage, and by the time I got my hands on the full game, I had become something of a Tony Hawk's master. Both of the first two games in the series were genuine PS1 classics. Everything about them seemed to have been designed specifically for what I was into at the time. From the grimy industrial aesthetic to the punky soundtrack, which seemed to become slightly more commercial with each release. I absolutely lapped it up. The series took a bit of a swerve when it introduced the underground games to the series, featuring characters from Jackass and Ridiculous Stunts. I think you could even ride a mechanical bull at one point, but again, I loved it all. I've not played a Tony Hawk game for some time, and I suspect returning to 1-3 to after all these years might be something of a nostalgia breaker, but I'm willing to bet 4 onward still holds up fantastically well. Absolutely fantastic games, and I feel ashamed that the series just kind of went a bit crap at the end. But still, those old games, they were brilliant. Adman says, The Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series arrived while me and my friend were at an impressionable age. We would spend hours desperately trying to beat each other's high scores, sometimes staying up until the early hours of the morning. We had a friendly yet fierce rivalry, and while we played other games together, the Tony Hawk series would always be a staple of our teenage years. Horse was a specific highlight where we would enter increasingly insultive words, raising the stakes and our vocabularies considerably, and casting eternal shame upon the loser. Our love for the series reached its peak with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. The addition of reverts really accelerated the craziness of our combos, with scores reaching several millions on near-perfect runs. While the series started to fall out of favor with us after Tony Hawk's Underground, I think that the first four Pro Skater games helped to inform and influence our interests at a young age. The recent fifth Pro Skater game failed to ignite that spark again, but still, we'll always have Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. The emailer says, Looking back over the series to when I lost passion for it, three things come to mind. The more complexity to the controls the series added, it took away from the simplicity of the challenge. The compact levels of the early games that were dense with challenges work better than the sprawling levels that require commuting. On a compact level, you weave between intertwined goals, trying to fit as much in as you can. For a large level, on a single run you can't see half the map. I guess this is why I never got into EA's Skate series. Storytelling or character arcs in the later games weren't really needed, or frankly any good. Being openly, frankly, a video game series with goals to get just because was good enough. Sam Worms says, The fourth may be my favorite. I easily spent the most time with it. The Alcatraz level sticks out most in my mind, particularly the mission where you had to do the tricks called out to you by the ghosts in their prison cells. The best part was the Xbox allowing me to download music to the console that could be used in-game. Nothing quite like zipping through the streets of London listening to the Beatles whilst grinding on a double-decker bus. Third Man says, The original Pro Skater is one of a select few titles that quite literally made my life better. I am from a medium-sized town in the Irish Midlands that is distinctly lacking in an extreme sports scene. The road and path services on my estate could scarcely accommodate a BMX, let alone a skateboard. I would occasionally trek across town in search of tarmac, dragging along my gigantic hand-me-down 80s board, complete with He-Man underside graphics. It was a style of board not typically known for ollies and heel flips, and it failed to kickstart my professional skateboarding career. 
So I was young and passionate about skateboarding, but somewhat awkwardly without any of the actual skateboarding, at least not the type I had in mind. The situation was compounded when my local newsagent began, rather callously, to stock Unity, the inline skating magazine, thus revealing to me a whole world of elaborate skate parks that I could never visit. Thanks for nothing, Mr. Newsagent. During that period, my family and I frequently visited relatives in Manchester, to which I added the subjective of visiting a proper skate park. However, with no internet to conduct research, or indeed an adult that cared much about my latent LA lifestyle, it never really happened. Some years later, that official PlayStation Magazine demo disc arrived in my life like a pop shove it to the face. All joking aside, I honestly struggled to describe just how important that demo level and the subsequent game were to me. Up until that point in my life, video games had become all about fantastic scenarios and otherworldly adventures, but here was a game, a mere collection of ones and zeros, that allowed me to tackle and overcome a very problem in my life. I couldn't afford regular trips to Dublin to visit a skate park, I had no way of getting my hands on a proper skateboard, and I most certainly could not convince my local county council to lay smooth surfaces in a piss-poor part of town but I could play Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and forget about poverty, geography, and social class. None of that mattered anymore. I was Tony Bloody Hawk. I like that. It's a good story. And finally, Taco Truck Spill says, The Tony Hawk series defined my high school years. I've spent more time playing 1 through 5 than any other series, which solidified a lot of my closest relationships as we completely immersed ourselves in skateboard culture. We'd skate around our small town on weeknights and weekends, then watch 411 video magazine tapes and take turns skating single sessions on the PS1 classic while trying to one-up each other with high scores. I remember closely studying the character animations in order to replicate them in real life. A close friend of mine and I applied the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 level Chicago to the point where we'd made up challenges for each other, i.e. flipping off the upper level into the lower transition of the pool, or hand-planting up to the rafters above the half-pipe, which we thought was a cool glitch, even if it was one. It was like Christmas morning when gaming magazines would first unveil images of the next Tony Hawk game, our minds would be blown as we learned about the real-world locations being featured that we'd seen so many times in skate movies, along with new characters and tricks. Alright, thank you very much for those. And, a little bit more pithy, we have some three-word combos coming up um, from our Twitter, at Kanerwins. We put out a call on the day of recording for three-word reviews. Try to sum up this uh, this extensive series in just three words. Um, but we have quite a few takers. Let's see how they did. Seanus Thomas says, Grinding I endorse. Alex79 UK says, Skate or die. Sam Worms says, Use the D-pad. Andrew Brown, Pretending I'm Superman. Paddy Stardust, Special Trick Noise. Telepri said, Excellent level creator. Michael Edward, Rust never sleeps. Ash Askin says, Brilliant, passable, shit. Blink Loggery said, Peaked at three. And I could not agree anymore. Uh, so all that's left is for us to give our summaries of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series. Carl, do you want to start us off today? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've put a ridiculous number of hours into this franchise. Primarily with the first three, I did put an incredible amount of time into American Wasteland, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, it, it's strange because I don't really want to run this as a recommendation or not because the, the game has aged, but if you want a skateboarding game, there's not really many alternatives outside of the EA Skate franchise, which in itself is dead. So um, in, in, in talking about it and, and my memories, 
and my feelings on the franchise are more saddened by the demise that it's taken. Um, the missteps, the misguidances of a poor production team, um, and, 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 you know, the directions that it was steered in order to accrue more fans instead of appeasing uh, its current set of fans, improving on and bringing in more that way, which, you know, in, in an ideal world would be the way things go, but production and publishers will always go for the quick and easy. Um, but that said, it has left a legacy. There's, there's no denying it. You know, it, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 are two of the most popular PS1 games, certainly incredibly so in my childhood. The, f- the first game is one of those local play games with friends that, that got an incredible number of hours that you know I'll always remember. And, and Tony Hawk's 3 was something that I would just sit away in my room evenings on end trying to get these incredible runs on these grandiose levels that, that were both fun and feature-packed. And... For me, it rightly deserves its place on Metacritic as one of the highest scoring PS2 games. And, you know, that's not said lightly on a console as important in history as the PlayStation 2 is. Um, but th- that that game, for me, is absolutely right up there. Does it hold up now? <laughs> not even close to what it did. But um, in, in terms of memories alone, I am so happy that we got the Tony Hawk's franchise, that it delivered Tony Hawk's 3, um, which, to my tastes, was just absolute heaven at the time. Um, it's a shame we will never see that franchise go back in that direction. It it, it just won't. Um, financially, I don't think it would make the money back it needs. I think culture has moved on. And I just I think it's a very niche market compared to what it was at the time that this franchise was at its peak, which is both sad, but hey, if every game could leave a legacy, they would do so happily. Yeah, that about sums it up. What about you, Dan? It's a series that I was obsessed with for um, for the longest time. I don't think anything's ever sort of grabbed, grabbed me quite like that before. Um, even so far, you know when you have to change controllers when playing through series sometimes? I thought that would be really difficult, mm. and I'd moved. Um, I think the Dreamcast had helped. By I'd you had that big old pad for um, Tony Hawk's One and Two on that after playing them through on the PlayStation already. Um, but the Dual Shock to me felt like the controller that was sort of tied in with the game. Um, and then I moved on to Three and using the Xbox, the original Xbox Duke controller. And I thought if any game can feel right using this then they've got something Mm. right with this game and that was for tony hawks 3 and um i'd agree with carl and almost everyone on the internet that three is a sweet spot of sorts but um i think the for me it carried on to four um i enjoyed four as much even though it's not as pure a game but um it's a series that just sort of dragged me away uh the right down to the game boy advantage versions um I know they're, they're always going to be much smaller, never quite the same thing. But that isometric 3D, I knew the levels. I could navigate it, even though I couldn't see every angle of every course. Mm, I knew yeah. where to go, and the lines felt right, and the and it all connected in the same way. It felt 
awfully authentic. Um, and in a small way, I think it's one of those games where nothing has ever quite felt the same since to me. And uh, and I haven't I haven't bought a console of this generation. So um, I've kind of sort of yeah wound down, I suppose, on on big TV gaming. And I think for me, Tony Hawk's is part of that, that it was that nothing else, like Carl says, nothing else would ever feel the same as that again for me. Um, I mean, Joe Danger does it for me on a small, limited way. But again, it's 2D, like Oli Oli. People say that scratches the itch sometimes. And uh, Joe Danger feels to me almost identical if i had my eyes shut i wouldn't be able to tell the difference between playing the two really if that makes sense not that i play the game with my eyes shut i, I wouldn't recommend that very, very well. difficult <laughs> yeah um but yeah that kind of scratches the itch but i don't think i'll ever find anything that connects with me and how i play games and how it feels every little part of how it feels um quite like tony hawks also one um weird little trivia thing that um, Treyarch cut their teeth on porting the Tony Hawk's games um, back in the day to the Dreamcast and it was when we were talking about how complete they feel it reminded me that um, the Black Ops games are often re- uh, remarked on as being these very complete things with lots of modes and and extra things and it's I just think it's interesting that uh, they and Activision have kind of I suppose learned how to give a complete package due to those Tony Hawk's games earlier on and yeah I love I love them for yeah, for the completeness, uh, they're something again. It's not going to be. A, this isn't about recommendations. It's the it's the legacy it's left. It's how it makes us feel, and this game makes me feel like I'm having the most fun ever and skating around the world. Can't go wrong with that. It's interesting that you would bring that up because uh, NeverSoft developed Call of Duty Ghosts, which is what a lot of Call of Duty fans would label as probably the most disposable entry in the entire series. So. Yeah, it's interesting that it's kind of changed over time. As far as my summary with this uh, series, this series was one of the real kind of, I'd say, seminal entries of of my generation, so to speak. Like, I think a lot of us were in the same place, doing the same things at the same time. And this series really kind of shaped the way that we viewed video games and viewed the world in a lot of ways. I think it's it's super cool to be in a world that is designed to be so like thoroughly interacted with in uh, in so many ways. Like there isn't, uh, you know, you aren't being shuttled in one direction necessarily. Uh, you aren't. Uh, there's not a lot of set dressing that can't be interacted with in some way. The entire world feels like like a living playground for you to jump up and and grind upon and and climb over and find secret areas and get to places that you aren't supposed to get to and everything about this just feels like such a like the the most full and complete utilization of these uh in-game environments that these developers created you know it's really using every part of the buffalo so to speak and it it kind of surprising now that there isn't a stronger indie game tony hawk like scene you know like there are genres that emerge within uh, the indie game scene like i would think if i was a 3d level creator for a lot of the same reasons that i listed before like i would love to work on a indie tony hawk game team because that would feel like the best way to show off your level building chops, you know, because 
each level would be so thoroughly explorable and you can show off your um, your knack for stringing together lines in intelligent ways and all that. But uh, yeah, and so I'm, I'm just kind of surprised that there aren't more of, of that going on. But maybe that's because there was such fatigue as the series kind of grew to be a bit long in the tooth later in its lifetime. I would recommend if people are interested in going back to this, um, if you want to go back to the very, very beginning, uh, pick up Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2X if you can, because that is the by far best version of the first two games. Um, the graphics are, are much improved. The handling is quite a bit nicer and just all around, it's a much kind of smoother and more polished package. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3 and 4 still totally hold up. Underground and Underground 2 play superbly, uh, but they you know are kind of weighed down by a lot of the extra stuff, but they still have some really wonderful levels. And the uh, the handling on them is quick and responsive as you're going to find anywhere else. So, um, you know, the games up through that point play excellently, still are, uh, are really fun to go back to. Um, after that point, it's a little bit more hit and miss. I think that American Wasteland Project 8 and Proving Grounds have some pretty major points that I disagree with. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, Proving Ground, by the end of that series... It just, you know, everything feels really heavy and sluggish and not as responsive. And so it's just like that the magic of the controls kind of were sucked away over time, which is too bad. You know, I I like to see series go out on a bang uh, rather than kind of leaking out a couple more watery farts before dying. All right. Well, that will wrap us up for today. I've been Ryan Heyman. I'd like to thank Carl Moon. And Dan Clark for joining me today. Uh, Dan, where can people find you on the internet if they would like to? Um, your best bet is to go to soundcloud.com forward slash Clarkanoid, and there you can find um, a variety of <laughs> all sorts of weird stuff I've made across the years, like music, comedy, poetry. Um, I've recently started doing, do you know loop pedal music? I've recently started doing that, so I put a few of those mm. tracks up. Um, yeah, it's just a load of stuff from uh, weird goes, guy's mind. So yeah, go and have a look at that. <laughs> Very cool. All right, and next time in issue 242, in space, no one can hear you wet yourself. It's alien isolation. Space, how low can you go? Death row, what a brother know. Once again, back is the incredible. Rhyme animal, the uncannable. D, public enemy number one. Five bulls and freeze. And I got numb. Can I do it? Never really, never had a gun. But it's the wax that determined it to fun. Got it, got me in a cell, put my records they sell. Cause a brother like me said, well, when it comes to you, what you ought to do is follow for now. How are the people say, make a miracle, deep on the miracle. Black is back, all in, we're gonna win, check it out. Yeah, y'all, come on. Here we go again. Turn it up. I 